All right, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to look this morning at verses 16 to 30. While you're turning there, let me make a note of something. Uh, We are always part, always becoming part of what God is already doing. And that's true for us no matter what our field is, but for pastors that is especially true. We always come to places where others have already been at work, where God has already been doing things. Um, This morning we have a special guest with us, um, Phil Douglas, uh, who is actually the founding pastor uh, of Heritage Presbyterian Church. Um, He's here-ish. Yes, he was instrumental (laughs) to the founding of Heritage Presbyterian Church. Uh, He left here, I believe, to go to Covenant Seminary, uh, where many years later, uh, I was one of his students, uh, and actually one of his graders. Uh, So it's kind of amazing to see how God has woven together a tapestry here. But um, Phil, we're so glad you're here with us today. So talk to him afterwards, he can tell you some wonderful stories stories about many things. But God's word for us this morning is Matthew chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 16 to 30 this morning. Listen to God's word. Behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good, and if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray 
and ask for his help to understand it. Father, we thank you that you are good and faithful. And we thank you that you haven't left us alone to figure out what we should believe or how we should live as your people. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. And we pray now that as we open it, that you would send the Holy Spirit to us, that you would teach us what it means to follow you. Show us our sin and show us Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Our passage this morning begins with a question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus answers by questioning the question, as Jesus often does. He says to this man who has come to him, this rich young ruler who has come to him, he says, you know what's good. God is the one who gave the law. God is good, so keep the law. Keep the commandments. Jesus is simply underscoring for this rich young ruler that there is no need for anything other than what has already been revealed. There is no need. There's nothing higher. There's no other special knowledge this man needs. The Bible is what tells him what to believe and how he should live. Jesus says, keep the commandments. Do what God has already said to do. The rich young ruler, though, is unsatisfied. He wants to go a little further, and so he says to Jesus, which ones? Which commandments should I, you know, should I focus on, Jesus? Jesus says, all right, number six, number seven, number eight, number nine, number five, and you should love your neighbor as yourself, which is from Leviticus 19, 18. In this, Jesus is focusing on half of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Theologians and biblical scholars would say that he is focusing on the second table of the Ten Commandments. Uh, The second table are the commandments that have to do with the duties that we owe to our neighbors, not to murder, not to steal, not to bear false witness, not to commit adultery, to honor our father and mother. All of these summarized in the teaching that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus probably focuses on this second table because they're visible things. Uh, It's easy to see if someone is not murdering. Uh, If Jesus said to him, you shall have no other God before God, he would say, I've got that. Uh, Those are invisible sort of commandments to obey. So Jesus focuses on the visible ones for now. The man hears this from Jesus to obey these commandments, and he says, nailed it. I have crushed this. This is exactly what I've been doing a long, long time. Jesus, what else should I do? Some scholars uh, speculate that what this man is really hoping Jesus is going to do is ask for a donation. Uh, that this man is, is actually sort of angling in kind of a public way to look really good in front of other people and to also get to sort of contribute some of his wealth to the cause of Jesus of Nazareth. But Jesus has another plan for this guy. Jesus will solicit a donation, but not a donation for his own coffers. And so he says in verse 21 to this rich young ruler, if you want to be perfect, 
there's one thing you still have to do. Sell everything you own, and I don't want it. Give it to the poor. If you do that, you will have treasure in heaven, and then once you've done that, come and follow me. Sell everything, give it to the poor, come and follow me. What Jesus is doing here is Jesus is asking this rich, young ruler to consider his heart. This man is incredibly confident in his own righteousness. This man is confident that he has been obedient to the law, that he has done all that God requires. He is sure he has kept the Ten Commandments perfectly, and so Jesus decides to flip the script on him. Jesus says, all right, let's do a pop quiz on the Ten Commandments. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me, so dump your wealth and follow me. We know that Jesus is God. He is literally asking the man, choose to follow me over your wealth. Verse 22 says that that's the one thing this man can't do. He leaves the conversation sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The man was not as righteous nor as obedient as he thought he was. The law itself exposed that. The Ten Commandments themselves exposed the fact that this man was not quite as great and quite as awesome as he thought he was, and Jesus threw it into stark relief. This man had another God before the Lord, and that God was his wealth, his possessions. And when Jesus said to him to give that up, he responds, Lord, anything but that. Anything but that. There's something interesting grammatically that happens in verses 16 and 22, kind of the two verses that frame Jesus' interaction with this rich young ruler. And what's interesting is both use the same verb. And it's the same in English and in Greek. He comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And then at the very end, he leaves sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And it seems like what Matthew is doing and the way he is presenting this story to us is he is showing us that this rich young ruler wants to have eternal life in the same way that he has great possessions. That is, he wants eternal life to be sort of an add-on, sort of a bonus to what he already has, which is a pretty great life. In other words, he wants everything he already has plus eternal life. Now, Christians probably wouldn't put it as boldly as that. I don't know that we would say we have the same tendency as him, but our temptation is similar because we often want to add things to the gospel. We want to add things to Jesus. We want the gospel plus something else, 
We'll come back to the something else in just a second. So we might think that our temptation is somewhat different than what the rich young ruler wants, but I'm not a mathematician. But there is something called the commutative property of addition. My elementary school students know it. And what it means is that 2 plus 4 is the same thing as 4 plus 2, which means that our temptation, though phrased in a different order, is really the same thing as what the rich, young ruler is doing here. He wants everything he has plus a little gospel. We want the gospel plus a little something else. And in reality, it is the same temptation. And friends, what Jesus is doing in these words, what Jesus is doing in this interaction is he is inviting the rich young ruler and he is inviting the disciples and he is inviting us to consider our hearts. And in particular, to consider our add-ons to the gospel. The things that we want to add to Jesus in order to find security and comfort and happiness and identity and purpose and what one pastor calls our enoughness. The things that make us feel like we are enough. Think about it. What are the add-ons that you have to the gospel? What are the things you want to add to the gospel to find security and comfort and purpose and happiness and identity and enoughness? The gospel plus something. For many of us, the temptation might be the same as the rich young ruler. And it might be that we want money. And that money is a thing that we feel like would just give us security if we just had a little bit more. We, we like what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. We don't want to get rid of that. But what we really want is just a little bit more in our savings accounts. And that would make us feel like we are doing just fine. Gospel plus money. That's one. It could be success. That you like the gospel, you like this identity that you have in Christ, you like the idea that God delights in you and that God has forgiven you for your sins, but you also really drive or derive your identity and your meaning and your purpose from the success that you have. Whether it's in your job or in your family or in your broader neighborhood, that you just have success and that's really what is driving your identity. The gospel plus something else. It could be power and influence, which could be you know, positions in uh, work uh, or in the community, or it could just be online even. We like the idea of being popular, and we like the idea of being well-regarded. And so power and influence or reputation become this thing that we add on to the gospel in order to find identity and meaning in our lives, in the world. It could be that you want to have intimate and satisfying relationships. And that the gospel is great, but what you really want are relationships that make you feel great about yourself. And when those relationships fail to deliver, you really don't do well. The gospel plus something else. The gospel plus an add-on. 
It could be a happy marriage. It could be great kids. It could be one of a thousand things, things we are adding to the gospel in order to find identity and security and comfort and happiness and purpose and meaning and enoughness. And the reality is that none of these things are bad things in themselves. It's not a bad thing to have a happy marriage. It's not a bad thing to have great kids. It's not a bad thing to have money or to be good at what you do or to be successful in your work or to have a good reputation in the community. None of those things are bad. But none of those things are meant to be our ultimate source of security, comfort, happiness, identity, meaning, purpose, and enoughness. And here's the problem. We see it in the text and we see it in our own hearts. The things we add on to the gospel become the anything buts. They become the things we can't imagine losing for the sake of Christ. And when add-ons become anything buts, we will say that the gospel is the most important thing in our life. We will maybe even cherish who we think we are in Christ. But at the end of the day, when our head is on the pillow, we find ourselves worrying and obsessing about our add-ons. And if push came to shove, we would often choose those things over faithfulness. To Christ. The rich young ruler wanted eternal life. He wanted to be righteous. He wanted to be obedient, but he wanted his possessions more. Jesus says to him, get rid of your possessions. And he says, anything but that. Our add-ons become our anything buts. And friends, I think what the Bible teaches us, I think what Jesus is reminding us of even here is that whatever we add to the gospel is functionally what we are trusting in for salvation. Whatever you add is functionally your savior. And so the Bible has a word for add-ons and anything buts, and that word is idols. Those things become our idols, false gods, that we worship and look to for security, for comfort, for happiness, for identity, for meaning, for purpose, and for enoughness. In fact, later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul explicitly tells us that greed is idolatry, the very sin that the rich young ruler is committing is an idol, a false god. And two things can happen when we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, when we take a good thing that God has given and we make it into an idol. And one of the things that can happen is we can crush that thing under the weight of our expectations. Pastor Tim Keller talks about that uh, for pages and pages and pages in his wonderful book, Counterfeit Gods. So, for instance, if your marriage or your children become your idol, become the thing you are looking to for meaning and purpose in the world, you will crush your spouse and your children under the weight of your expectations. Your kids can never be good enough to reflect well on you. Your spouse can never fulfill everything you hope he or she can be. 
If you do it with relationships, the same thing is true if they're friendships or if they're romantic relationships. Your partner, your friends can never be what you hope they can be. You will crush that person under the weight of your expectations. That's one thing that can happen. Here's the second. Your idol will eat you alive. One theologian I saw said that every idol ultimately asks for a human sacrifice. The great essayist and novelist David Foster Wallace was giving a famous commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005, and he makes this very point. He says this to the graduates of Kenyon College uh, 17 years ago. He says, the truth is in the world, everybody worships. And anything you worship other than God will eat you alive. If you worship money or things, you will never have enough. You will never feel like you have enough. If you worship your body or beauty or sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Man, it's pretty strong. He was doing pretty good until he got to the being seen as smart one, and then he started meddling a little bit too much for me. Friends, idols are anywhere we turn. Anywhere we look for ultimate happiness and comfort and identity and security and meaning and purpose and enoughness, anywhere we turn other than Christ is an idol. The theologian and pastor John Calvin says that our hearts are idol factories. We pump these things out faster than we can even recognize them. And what Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler and to us here is that we must turn away from our idols and follow him. We must turn away from these places that we are looking for security and comfort and follow Christ alone. It's fascinating to note that Matthew 19 is the only place in the Gospels where someone directly refuses Jesus' invitation to come and follow him. That's striking, isn't it? Idolatry is powerful. Idolatry changes and twists our desires and our hearts such that we can't even love what is good anymore. This is why I think Jesus turns to the the disciples after this conversation with the rich young ruler and says, hey, it's really hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier, in fact, for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Now, when I was growing up, a pastor told me one time that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the Needle Gate 
um, that was small. And so for a camel to go through the needle gate, it would have to get down on its knees. And so what this is really saying is that rich people just need to humble themselves in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the only problem with that interpretation of this passage is that it's untrue. (laughs) There is no needle gate. This is as ridiculous an image as it sounds like. Jesus says it's harder for a camel, which is large, to fit through the eye of a needle, which is small. In fact, it's impossible. It is easy for wealthy people to find their security and comfort and happiness and identity and purpose and meaning and enoughness in their wealth. And for the disciples, this is mind-blowing. And that's why in verse 25 they say to Jesus, Jesus, you're making it sound like it's kind of hard to be saved. Jesus says, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make it sound hard to be saved. I meant to tell you it's impossible to be saved. If you trust in yourself, it is impossible to be saved. There is no good deed which is sufficient for salvation because salvation is ultimately not something you do. It is something that God does. You get to verse 27 and Peter asks what I think is one of my favorite questions in the Bible. He says, see, we have left everything and have followed you. What then will we have? It's an honest question. It's an amazing question. Think about everything that has come in the week's preceding this, everything that the disciples have learned from Jesus. This is really the question that Peter is asking. He's saying, Jesus, recently you have told us that we should come and die. You want us to take up our crosses and follow you. Now you're saying you want us to put away all of the things that we find security and comfort and happiness and purpose and meaning and enoughness in and to find our hope only in you. But now you're saying we can't even do that. On top of that, you just fouled off this guy who would have been an asset to any organization he wanted to be part of. He was wealthy. He's an upstanding guy. He's well thought of in the community. He's got integrity. And and honestly, if he's not what the kingdom of heaven is about, what is? Like, what is? And honestly, Jesus, I've given up a lot to be here. What's in it for me? That's Peter's question. I've given up a lot. What's in it for me? Jesus' answer is breathtaking in its simplicity because his answer is everything. Everything is in it for me. Everything is in it for you. Everything. Jesus says to the disciples, you will reign with me in the new heavens and the new earth, a world that is full of joy and holiness and righteousness and no more pain or tears or death or sadness, you will reign along with me. And in verse 29, he says to the rest of us, everyone who has lost anything to follow Jesus will receive a hundred times more than they lost on top of eternal life. Everything is in it for us. And friends, this frees us. This frees us to follow Jesus into love of God and love of neighbor because it means we don't have to maximize our happiness and our consumption right now. And that pries our fingers off of our idols. And it frees us and it teaches us to enjoy our blessings rightly, not as sources of ultimate happiness, comfort, 
or security, but as gifts from a heavenly Father who loves us and delights in us. The good gifts that we have in this life are actually a foretaste of the glory to come. And friends, Jesus reminds us again and again and again, we don't earn that glory to come. Jesus says here that's impossible because it's something that God does. Jesus is saying here that there is a law God has given that we can't keep. And so what God does is God keeps the law on our behalf. That's what Jesus is doing. His perfect obedience, every breath, every heartbeat, every second of his life is Jesus keeping the law for us. And not only does he keep the law, he pays the penalty for our failure to keep it. That's what the cross is. He is dying the death that each of us deserve, the death of a sinner. But Jesus doesn't end it there because he defeats death for us. When he rises again to new life, he defeats death. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit, which empowers us. It it cleanses us of our idols. It teaches us to follow him. It makes us more and more like him in every day that we walk with Christ. And Jesus secures for us the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell with him for eternity in a world without pain or sorrow or tears or death. That Jesus stands before us this morning with extended hands. And he says, come and follow me. And when we do that, our lives are caught up into a beautiful story. Whereas one pastor says it, our bad things become good things. Our good things are never taken away. And the best is always yet to come. It's good news. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this reminder of your goodness and your grace and your glory. Father, we thank you that though the law exposes us and condemns us, you have kept it on our behalf. Father, we thank you that salvation is not something we earn. Salvation is not something we do. It is something you do for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to turn away from the other ways that we try to find security and comfort and happiness and identity and meaning and purpose and enoughness. Father, forgive us for the ways we still cling to those things and teach us that Christ alone is our hope. Christ alone alone is our salvation. Father, even now as we come to your table, we pray that you would be at work in us. We pray that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to anchor us in the truth of what Christ has done on our behalf. And this meal make us more and more like Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.